0: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nall Online harassment takes many forms, and victims often have limited ways to protect themselves. Today, we explore this form of harassment. Nina Jankowicz knows what it's like. She was targeted by political disinformation campaigns and on social media. She's the author of How to Be a Woman Online, Surviving Abuse and Harassment, and How to Fight Back. She described the social media attacks on her to WHYY's Fresh Air earlier this year, saying, it's not just mean words on the Internet. It was real, violent threats to her and her family, as well as attacks on her very being. Jenkowitz joins us. Coming up, we learn how an online forum called Kiwi Farms served as a platform for users to dox and torment transgender and neurodivergent people. And later we ask whether the Alex Jones verdict could influence how people behave. Have you experienced online harassment? We want to hear from you, too. You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888 720 wmpr or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Today we'll be talking about adult themes, and this episode is not appropriate for young listeners and for listeners who may find the topic disturbing. With us on Zoom now is Nina Jenkowitz vice president at the Center for Information Resilience, a UK-based nonprofit that focuses on countering misinformation, documenting human rights abuse, and combating online harms. Nina, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. I guess, first off, how did you get interested in disinformation and also researching online harassment?
1: Yeah, so the lens that I
2: look at all of this stuff through is, is the lens of Russia, actually. I, I did my degree in Russian studies, uh, did a graduate degree in kind of the region as well, and spent my early first few years of my career uh, working for an organization that did democracy support for organizations in Central and Eastern Europe and around the world. And I saw a lot of the partners that we were working with in places like Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine being targeted with uh, what back then we called, you know, just Russian propaganda because it was uh, domestically oriented. We weren't quite in the era of, you know, global disinformation campaigns yet, but it was really a precursor to what we saw in the 2016 election. Uh, And then I spent the years of 2016 and 2017 in Ukraine, advising the foreign ministry there on strategic communications. So this was already after the war in Ukraine that has escalated now began in 2014. And of course, during the U.S. election. Um, and that's when I really started to think about how you know the West approaches disinformation with a lot of hubris. Uh, we think we're the first people that this has ever happened to, to, but it's our allies in Central and Eastern Europe that have been dealing with this for decades. And that's when I really got interested in in this field, and and how we could kind of deal with this, you know, existential threat to democracy. Um, and during that research that I was doing out in Ukraine, I came across stories of women who had been targeted by the Kremlin. Uh, they were opposition figures, uh, journalists, and in general, you know, women with opinions really out there in their countries. And they had been targeted with this, you know, sexualized and gendered disinformation that. Uh, tried to paint them as people who were untrustworthy, people who were, you know, um, not part of the patriarchal society that their countries, uh, you know, were were grounded on. And and that's when I really started to research online hate and, and gender disinformation. We often talk about you know, racial cleavages or economic cleavages when we talk about disinformation. But very, very few people were even mentioning gender as a cleavage, even though, uh, of course, Hillary Clinton was targeted with a lot of uh, similar attacks during her campaign. And so since then, I've been researching not only how Russia uh, uses this tactic, but how Iran and China use it and how, frankly, domestic actors in our own political discourse use it against women to silence us.
0: And then I, I understand you got a dream job working, I believe, with the U.S. Department of Homeland Security to counter disinformation. You then became a target. Can you tell our listeners more?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a long story, but let me tell you the short version. I, uh, as you said, had spent a lot of time working in this field and really had always focused on solutions, had focused on what our governments can do to to counter disinformation. And to be clear, that doesn't mean censoring people. That doesn't mean removing things from the internet. In fact, I write very frequently about how playing what I call whack-a-troll and just removing offensive accounts or or speech that is incorrect is not going to solve the problem. I'm much more interested in you know, uh, really whole of society solutions that solve the root causes of disinformation. And so I was appointed to lead the Disinformation Governance Board at DHS. Uh, Unfortunately, a a fairly draconian sounding name, but its purpose was just to coordinate across the Department of Homeland Security, which is a huge, huge department with many disparate missions uh, under its umbrella, to coordinate the activities um, that many of the agencies were doing with regard to information and integrity. So uh, looking at how FEMA was helping connect people with good information around natural disasters, um, looking at how Customs and Border Protection was trying to dispel disinformation around uh, irregular migration to the United States from the southern border. And of course, you know, the cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency, CISA, deals with uh, disinformation around elections. And that's just just a few of the things that uh, we were looking at. And it was just a coordinating body. And unfortunately, because the department coordinated and or, or communicated rather in a fairly opaque way about the mission um, that informational vacuum was filled in by uh, political partisans who called the department and uh, the board a ministry of truth said that i was going to be america's chief censor or a truth czar which was the farthest thing from the truth possible um and in that vacuum of information they also started digging around in my personal life targeting me and my family. I was eight and a half months pregnant at the time the board was announced and uh, they started talking about, you know, my, my pregnancy and marital status. Uh, We were doxxed. We received letters to our home and phone calls to our personal um, numbers. And, Uh, I was receiving violent threats on a regular basis. And in fact, I still receive uh, at least a few of them a week. Um, And in fact, there's often influxes when I am mentioned on Fox News or another right wing channel uh, or when senators and members of Congress are mentioning me on the House floor, which happens fairly frequently. So it's um, it's really shocking the degree to which my life was changed simply for wanting to serve my country in uh, my area of expertise. And as a result of both uh, the, the department's kind of inability to counter those lies and stick up for me, the woman that they brought in to lead this effort, as well as the, the harassment against my family, I decided to leave the department just over five months ago.
0: Mm. That's a lot. And I'm sorry that happened to you, Nina. Uh, when we think about um, how this this kind of spiraled maybe uh, explain to our listeners in terms of how influencers or how people would post this disinformation about the role about and the gendered abuse that you experienced and and how it became um, you know a, more than just a trickle and i'm wondering if you can talk more about that
2: yeah it it happened fairly quickly so um the announcement went out one morning. And by uh, 1 or 2 p.m. that afternoon, a prominent conservative influencer with over a million Twitter followers had posted that uh, the board was a ministry of truth. And again, I was a disinformation czar, which was false. Um, And immediately from there, uh, the, the kind of abuse and threats escalated fairly quickly. By that evening, uh, my husband and I were looking at how to install a security camera in the front of our house because I, as I've as studied this and I knew where it was going. Um, the next day I was uh, on Fox News almost all day, not me personally, but images of me, uh, discussion of me, uh, videos I had posted on the internet. And that's when the threats started to get really quite... Um, disturbing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then from there, again, um, members of Congress engaged in in this behavior as well, just, you know, sharing falsehoods on, on the floor of Congress, calling press conferences, uh, which led to, um, it's not just, you know, Twitter DMs mm-hmm. or, or tweets, it was emails to me on my personal email address. It was, again, mail to my home and to the department. It was, uh, you know LinkedIn messages, people doing this under under their real names and saying things like, um, you know, this is our 1776 moment, or uh, you've committed treason and you deserve to be punished, and and things that I can't really repeat on air, um, along with sexualized threats as well. My my face appeared on uh, a a manual that somebody put together for impro- improvised um, munitions, right? So like real threats to to me and my family. Um, and I, the thing that still, you know, five months later that really bothers me is that the influencers and the members of Congress and all of the pundits who engaged in this just gross speculation, and that's like the most diplomatic thing that you could say about it. Uh, I think it was quite deliberate uh, obfuscation of, of the truth. They knew what they were saying was false. They also knew that the people that follow them on the internet are um, you know, apt to engage in this behavior. This is not something that is an outlier. This happens a lot. Uh, it is, you know, shown in what happened with uh, folks who are doxed and targeted, uh, like the, the gamer Keffels recently who was doxed, uh, it happened to the Alex Jones, uh, you know, targets of abuse. The, the families from Sandy Hook. Um, this is not new and I think we need to have some accountability and responsibility. Um, these people are profiting off of it. They are selling ads. They are profiting in power as well. Um, And what they're doing is just trying to evoke fear in people to continue engagement in their shows, in their platforms, and they're ruining lives in the process. Now I'm going to keep speaking out about this and I'm going to not let folks get away with it. And I'm very focused on changing the way that the internet works for those who come after me. Um, But I, I really do think that people need to recognize there's not a, a nice little neat split between the online and the offline anymore, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in the age of of COVID, where so much of our work and social lives has moved to online. If you are trying to drive people off the Internet, not only from expressing themselves in a democratic way, but just in connecting with other humans in general, you're really affecting their day-to-day lives and it shouldn't be something that we view as part of the political discourse in america it should be unacceptable to everybody
0: and nina you're exactly right the consequences of the people who have been targeted versus those who perpetuate uh, these these lies these these abuses online because that's the that's the goal right to silence people Uh, you know you resigned again from this job that you were really looking forward to but you have chosen uh, not to stay silent, but that's um, you know hard for some people uh, to even attempt because of how insidious this is.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and that's one of the reasons I wrote my book, which um, I I wrote prior to joining the department because I had experienced this type of abuse before, of course, not to the the degree that I I experienced it this year, um, and I had seen how other women were affected by it, and I wanted to make sure that you know, people in the position, the unfortunate position of being targets of online abuse had a toolkit available to them to understand kind of, okay, here's where I find myself. How can I best protect myself? Or how can I protect myself proactively in the event that this does happen? Because it's not just, you know, people with tens of thousands of Twitter followers that this happens to. You can just be uh, a, a normal person online expe- expressing your opinion and um, unfortunately you can you can get hit with some of this stuff so it's things like you know locking down your it. security uh, making sure that you have a support network understanding the infrastructure of the platform so that you can send in reports and and make sure there is at least some modicum of accountability for the people who are abusing you uh, it's not enough it it puts the onus on the target of the abuse in to take care of this stuff when you know there are multi-billion dollar corporations profiting off of it, as well as the individual influencers who are making money off of these things as well. Um, but at least I hope it helps women and other marginalized communities hold their ground because our democracy can't function if 50 percent of the population is too afraid to make their voice heard. And uh, I know that, you know, for the women, the young women who I mentor, my students, etc., cetera, um, this stuff matters to see women continuing to speak out in the face of this You know, ridiculous and unfortunately, very normal abuse.
0: You're hearing Nina Jenkiewicz here where we live, vice president at the Center for Information Resilience, as we talk about online harassment. Her organization is a UK based nonprofit that focuses on countering misinformation, documenting human rights abuse and combating online harms. And she's also the author of How to Be a Woman Online, Surviving Abuse and Harassment and How to Fight Back. We're going to be talking more after the break about uh, some other examples of online harassment and the consequences for perpetrators of this. You can join us, too, if you have a question or comment, 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy nolpeth This episode contains adult themes not appropriate for young listeners and for listeners who may find the topic disturbing. Now, our connection to the online world brings us many advantages. There are also plenty of drawbacks like online harassment, which is the most insidious. We've been talking about it with my guest, Nina Jenkiewicz, who experienced this firsthand and has written a book called How to Be a Woman Online, Surviving Abuse and Harassment and How to Fight Back. Transgender people have also been frequent targets of online harassment, a website known as Kiwi Farms, known for harassment campaigns against transgender and neurodivergent people, had been booted off the internet after a trans activist launched a campaign to get this fringe forum deplatformed. Joining us now with more is Kat Tenbarge, who's reported on Kiwi Farms. Uh, Kat is a tech and culture reporter at NBC News. Kat, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Our listeners can join as well, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Kat, this might be the first time many of our listeners have even heard of Kiwi Farm. So uh, describe this uh, online forum.
1: Sure. So Kiwi Farms first originated in about 2013. And it's a forum online, which means that people can anonymously create accounts in order to post information on various message boards and threads. And so as somebody who has seen this website as part of my reporting, I can describe what some of those pages looked like. And for example, uh, Kiwi Farms would find an individual to begin compiling information about. So this could be Um, a trans influencer, or this could be a prominent neurodivergent individual online, but it could also be a very private individual, someone who a lot of people would not know about. And what their threads typically looked like was at first individuals who were members of the forum would begin to just compile all different kinds of information. This could range from publicly known social media accounts, things like Twitter handles, Twitch uh, pr- profiles, but individuals on Kiwi Farms would take this further and would actually attempt to collect private information, things like people's addresses, phone numbers, criminal records, housing records, employment records, and then even beyond that, they would find information about friends and family members, combing through Facebook pages and other social media profiles to create. Uh, a file essentially on this person. And so these sort of files would live on Kiwi Farms for years at a time. And they would serve as a place where people could come with the intent to harass or defame or maliciously discuss these individuals. And as we've seen in many different cases with these individuals, that harassment would jump from just Kiwi Farms into having real life consequences. Mm.
0: So everything you've described, this releasing of personal information, posting it online, that's what doxing is. Yes. Uh, When uh, we think about uh, the consequences, as we were talking with Nina earlier, I mean, this harassment is so severe, it has led some people who've been targeted to die by suicide. Yes. What can you tell us about that?
1: So in the cases of some of these individuals, and I think this is a really important facet of kiwi farms that oftentimes people maybe underestimate or don't realize is that yes they do target high profile individuals but i think in these cases where uh, individuals unfortunately died by suicide a lot of times they weren't particularly well known and so what you have happening here is an individual who may already be relatively isolated from their community Um, i think kiwi farms members maliciously targeted individuals who may have had, uh, you know, past histories of mental illness or who may may maybe openly struggled with things like suicidal ideation or a desire to die by suicide. And so they find these very vulnerable people and can stage literally years long campaigns Uh, That can include defamatory information, making up things that these individuals were supposedly having, having done that weren't true, saying things like in the example of transgender people, they would make up really malicious fables of them being predatory toward young people or toward people in their own communities. And people were ultimately, I think, just feeling like they couldn't escape from the harassment and the online history of kiwi farms that had followed them and so in the case of some of these individuals who died by suicide they left behind uh, notes or they maybe left behind statements about some of the motivations that they had and kiwi farms was actually mentioned as one of the driving factors that led these individuals to make that choice Mm -hmm.
0: Again, this was an online fringe forum that existed since 2013, so it wasn't until uh, a woman by the name of Clara Sorrenti, uh, better known uh, online as Keffels, a trans activist, a target of Kiwi Farms. Uh, This is her describing how she was targeted, and this audio is from CNN. And I thought that if I got far away and went to a different continent, they wouldn't be able to do the same thing. And then it
2: turned out I was wrong. They were able to cross-reference what they saw on the bed sheets with every other hotel in the city until they found out that the specific bedsheets only had a pattern in this one hotel that I was staying at. People have been trying to get this site offline for nearly a decade. I know that there's always a threat against me as long as I'm standing up for this. The alternative would have been the site keeps going. And not only me, but the countless other victims of this
0: site who get harassed relentlessly every single day would have to continue through that nightmare. So again, that's Clara Sorrenti speaking to CNN. Uh, describe what Clara had to do when, when uh, she was doxed because of, of Kiwi Farms.
1: Sure. So when Clara was initially doxed, she was also swatted. And so swatting is a tactic that online harassers like Kiwi Farms Um, have used to put individuals in danger. And what that looks like is they will figure out, you know, this is where this person lives and this is their local municipality. So they'll find the local police authorities and they will put in a false report. Uh, That can be something like them calling the police department or in in Clara's case, they emailed the police department impersonating her, claiming that they were going to stage a a sort of terroristic threat. Um, And so... This leads the local authorities, many of whom do not understand what swatting is. They may not have even heard of it as a phenomenon. They will believe that the person in this case, Clara, poses a threat and so will send a highly armed group of law enforcement to their house to confront them. And so this is an extremely dangerous situation. People have died during swattings before because, you know, the police think that they are encountering an armed threat. And so that, uh, that confrontation can take a lot of different forms. In Clara's case, her laptop and some of her personal items were confiscated during a brief investigation. Ultimately, she explained to the local authorities what had happened, and they sort of apologized and said, you know, now we're going to investigate the source of this false report. But in a lot of cases, it can be too late. And so in Clara's case, even though she was able to escape that imminent threat, She, as described in that audio, she went to a local hotel. The hotel was determined, like they found the location. They hacked into her Uber account and sent her groceries. They bought groceries from her account and sent them to the hotel. And so then she actually left Canada, her home country and went to the UK and was privately, she did not disclose this to the internet, but she was privately staying at a location in Ireland. And again, it was they were able to determine where she was, and someone actually showed up outside of the place she was staying and posted a picture online that showed them holding up a, a written threat outside of this location. Um, so it just goes to show the extent and the lengths to which people will take to continue these harassment campaigns. Uh-
0: Tell us more about Clara. Again, Clara is a trans activist. Uh, what made Kiwi Farm users target Clara? Um, with, because she had a pretty big following, uh, again, uh, um, with which Twitch streamers, which is a site that gamers use. Can you describe that more, Kat?
1: For sure. So Clara is somebody who I think like a lot of average Twitch users didn't set out to have a huge platform. Rather, she was just an average person who enjoyed playing video games and using the platform Twitch. But because she's transgender, she started to speak up during her streams about some of the political issues facing transgender people, especially in the United States, uh, where recent legislation has been put in place to attempt to stop kids from, uh, you know, exploring their gender identity or taking steps to medically transition. So, Clara began to speak out about these issues, and that was a very engaging sort of material for other young transgender people or just other young people who were engaged in these topics. And so, her platform on Twitch grew very quickly. um, And her style of combating this type of content that was discriminatory towards trans people was she really met it head on. So, she engaged in a lot of debate style tactics. You know, she would. Directly address some of the biggest influencers spreading transphobic rhetoric, and because of her really, um, because of her extremely abrupt style, where she would sort of meet these things head on, it attracted a lot of positive attention, but it also attracted a lot of negative attention. And I think that that's something that Clara has always exemplified throughout her online career. Is she doesn't back down, she doesn't shy away. Um, in a lot of cases, with Kiwi farms, when people first start getting noticed by the site and the site starts compiling information about them and harassing them, I think people's initial uh, idea of what to do is to just stay silent about it. Don't attract more attention, you know, saying, "Hey, this is a problem I'm experiencing. A lot of people think that that will make the problem worse. And in Clara's case, she was extremely transparent with her audience about what was happening every step of the way. This may have led to escalation from Kiwi Farms members, but it also led to Clara gaining more and more public support and more and more media coverage.
0: You're hearing Kat Tenbar here, where we live, a tech and culture reporter at NBC News. Uh, So given Clara's strength uh, to meet this head on, uh, despite, um, again, this insidious nature of of uh, posting about uh, all of her personal information, following her when she felt she had to flee her home country, she was able to get Kiwi Farms shut down. So what's the status today?
1: So Kiwi Farms has returned to some capacity, but it's not the same as it was before. Essentially, the way that Kiwi Farms was operating in the way that you could literally just Google it and any average internet user could access Kiwi Farms, they were able to do that because of a service called Cloudflare. Uh, Cloudflare does provide hosting services for websites, but they weren't hosting Kiwi Farms. Uh, what they were doing was they were providing providing a form of web protection services to the website. And so Clara's campaign was to get Cloudflare to drop those services, which would then enable Kiwi farms to be left vulnerable to cyber attacks that could shut the website down. And so it's it's really a technically interesting sort of debate because you have activists wanting to sort of fight fire with fire and attack the website, Uh, At this stage, the website is currently, it's self-reliant, so it's hosting itself and it's protecting itself using services that are in other countries. I think last I heard they were using some Russian services, but the site has diminished in its ability to reach people. And I would say uh, the site is not as active, perhaps, as it once was.
0: You mentioned Cloudflare. I understand that when they were first asked to shut Kiwi Farms down or to drop services, They push back uh, in the statement was in part, quote, just as a telephone company doesn't terminate your line. If you say awful, racist, bigoted things, we've concluded in consultation with politicians, policymakers and experts that turning off security services because we think what you publish is despicable is the wrong policy. Again. Cloudflare did indeed uh, do that later. But, you know, what was your reaction to that statement? Is this a typical reaction uh, by uh, companies, uh, you know, even big tech related to what should and should not be allowed?
1: I would say this is definitely a typical sort of sentiment that we see expressed by big tech platforms. In general, there's been a sort of trend of big tech not wanting to take responsibility for the extremely harmful content that is sometimes enabled by their platforms or services. And this is something that we've been seeing over and over and over again over the past decade, particularly as social media has grown to incorporate huge parts of the population. We've also seen the spread and proliferation of extremely harmful content, content that enables real-life harassment content that pushes bigotry and division, content that includes uh, defamatory or fake news. And when these sort of platforms and services are confronted with the fact that they are enabling this kind of content, they don't want to be the ones who are held liable or responsible in any way. So what Cloudflare said in that statement, it came off to a lot of people as hypocritical because in the past, Cloudflare has dropped services to websites because of you know, the sort of vile content that was being hosted on them. But in this case, they wanted to draw a line in the sand. And what's really interesting is just a couple of days later, they reversed course, and they did drop Kiwi Farms from their services.
0: Kat, you're a journalist. You're covering this fringe platform. Again, uh, it it causes a lot of harm to others. Were you ever worried they'd do this to you? Have you been targeted?
1: I definitely was aware that that could be a possibility. Uh, Some of my colleagues and peers have had Kiwi Farms pages created about them. So it was absolutely something that I knew could happen. And while I don't believe there's ever been a page created for me personally, I've definitely been mentioned on the site and in conversations. Uh, But for me, I think, and for a lot of journalists who cover these types of things, we just recognize it as as part of the as part of the job, really, it's unfortunate. And I think that there's a lot more that newsrooms and people in the media industry could be doing to support journalists and help them combat these things. But once you start covering these fringe online spaces, or even mainstream spaces, you will often find yourself being targeted by the exact same by the exact same forces and people. Mm -hmm.
0: You can join us as we talk about online harassment with my guest, again, Kat is here from NBC News, a tech and culture reporter, our number, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Nina is still with us, Nina Jenkowitz. I, I wonder if you could respond to what we've heard from Kat. Uh, and again, um, you know, there is this belief out there that this kind of harassment is protected by free speech. How do you respond, Nina.
2: So the comparison that I often make is that if these threats if this harassment were happening on the street you would be able to get a restraining order. I've had, you know, people send me multiple messages like this um and there are ways to try to bring people up on cyber harassment charges uh unfortunately our defamation law doesn't do very much for victims of uh targeted harassment and and disinformation online um but the long and short of it is if these people were surrounding you in a mob on the street you would be able to call the police and unfortunately Our legal system has not really caught up with the realities of the Internet today, and uh, often local police departments either don't know how to deal with these cases or it's outside of their jurisdiction because it's across state lines. Uh, And again, the onus then becomes on the target of the harassment rather than on, you know, the law enforcement agencies that are meant to be protecting us on the social media platforms that have a duty of care toward their users. Uh, It absolutely is not just a disagreement that we're talking about online. It is vile, vicious, vicious sexualized, uh, threatening language. And for me, you know, you don't have the right to frankly send death threats to somebody just because you disagree with them politically. Uh, you have a right to disagree with me, but that's not what we're talking about here. I'm happy to entertain disagreements online, but these things are not only, you know, covered by the terms of service that the uh, social media platforms have, they're just not enforcing those terms of service, uh, they wouldn't necessarily be covered in real life. And so I think it's time to step up uh, and make sure that, you know, the the online and the offline realms of our lives are covered by the same sorts of laws.
0: Coming up, we're going to talk with you, Nina, and hear from you about how other countries are responding. Before we get to that, though, Akat, I wanted to go back to you because I believe a hacker breached Kiwi Farms and got information on all the users. How did that go?
1: Yes. So, like I mentioned earlier, it's a really interesting sort of technical and ethical discussion happening around Kiwi Farms because you have a lot of uh, independent internet activists who are often operating totally anonymously who are kind of fighting fire with fire. So a lot of people, you know, would on its face look at something like hacking and releasing, you know, the information of users on a forum as something that is unethical, in some cases even illegal. But in the case of Kiwi Farms, it was... Really, just a tactic that took what they were doing with people on their website and putting it right back against them. So, I would say that this is comparable to uh, a case that a lot of people may have heard about with a website called Ashley Madison, uh, which was a dating website for people who were married to cheat on their spouses. And there was a massive data breach where the names of all of the people who used that website were revealed to the public. And so, it's kind of a similar sort of unmasking where. You have uh, kind of shadowy, anonymous individuals doing this work in order to kind of fight back against. In that case, it was a way for people to cheat. In the case of Kiwi Farms, it's a way for people to harass under the guise of an anonymity.
0: You're hearing Kat Timbarge here where we live, tech and culture reporter at NBC News, also with us, Nina Jenkiewicz, vice president at the Center for Information Resilience, a UK-based nonprofit that focuses on countering misinformation documenting human rights abuses and combating online harms. More with them after a short break. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nolpethanchel. We've been talking about online harassment today with my guests. Now, our conversation comes one week after conspiracy theorist and influencer Alex Jones was ordered to pay nearly $1 billion to families of the 2012 Sandy Hook mass shooting. Victims. A jury sided with the plaintiffs over Jones's false claims about the tragedy, which led his Infowars followers and others to harass and send death threats to these families. Now, will this verdict change people's behaviors, especially online? You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Nina Jankowicz, again, I, 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 I'm the vice president at the Center for Information Resilience. Uh, what do you think about this verdict? Uh, you know, will it change people's behaviors?
2: Of course, I'm, I'm pleased to see there is some justice for the Sandy Hook families who have gone through just unimaginable tragedy after tragedy. But I don't think in this case we're really going to see a, a trickle down effect in terms of online abuse and harassment, because what has happened is the bar has been set so high. Right. Uh, Alex Jones did the unimaginable for for many, many years, profiting off of these families' personal tragedies uh, and and kind of turning a blind eye to the trickle-down harassment that his commentary, if you can call it that, inspired. And for those people who are undergoing much less uh, diffuse harassment campaigns, ones that are perhaps shorter, uh, there is still going to be an extremely high bar For them to get any justice. And again, that lack of accountability, lack of justice, not just in our legal system, but in the social media platforms that aren't, you know, upholding their duty of care to to their users and and enacting their terms of service, enforcing their terms of service. uh, There's just no accountability in this space. And while, you know, it might be a, a kind of detriment to those who are seeking to profit off of this in the future. I haven't seen any real change in behavior. In fact, we see many of the people who are engaging in similar conspiratorial harassing rhetoric in the conservative social media sphere Uh, you know, mourning um, the Alex Jones verdict and saying that it is a uh, an infraction on freedom of speech uh, Mm -hmm. rather than, you know, trying to reevaluate their own behavior. So unfortunately, while I'm uh, pleased for the families and hope that this puts an end to the suffering that they've gone through, I don't think that it is going to send the necessary uh, the necessary signal, especially to the downstream harassers who have been inspired by people like Alex Mm -hmm. Jones.
0: And, you know, what about other countries? How are they addressing online harassment and uh, the people uh, perpetuating this abuse?
2: Yeah, so this is um, a delicate area. And I think one thing that I want to put out there, especially for the people who think, again, that I was meant to be some sort of online censor, I don't necessarily think that removing speech is uh, the way to prevent this sort of harassment. And in, in countries like in Germany, for instance, there is a law called NetzDG, which requires social media platforms to remove expressly, manifestly illegal content or risk being fined. And what this has led to is actually. Uh, the over-removal of content that is often affecting women and minorities more than it's affecting majority populations and, and, you know, downstream affecting the freedom of speech of those populations. So uh, those sorts of laws can be a little bit of a cudgel. However, there are some better examples around the world, including in Australia, where they have an e-safety commissioner that uh, oversees the kind of transparency issues related to content moderation online from the platforms, as well as uh, content that is illegal. They've they've uh, passed a bill in Australia that makes certain types of content, like uh, child pornography and non consensual nude image sharing, and uh, online harassment, in fact, and defamation, um, they've made those illegal and it, individuals can uh, potentially be fined up to about 80,000 US dollars uh, through the e-safety commissioner for Harassment, like what I experienced. And I wonder if there were some accountability in the space that we're operating in here in the United States. And, you know, most of the platforms are headquartered here. If that would make the Internet a uh, a more civil place, a place where everyone can express their opinions, not just the loudest and most vicious. Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, when we think about big tech uh, and, and the websites that are profiting, I think you've, Nina, you've talked about something called malign creativity—ways that people get around uh, how AI that's uh, be, being used to, I guess, um, you know, check on what's being posted and, and you know, maybe to deter or in some ways uh, hide uh, what people are saying. This is what some tech companies have uh, have done, but. You know, I'm just wondering if you can talk about how people are getting around this and how that, that pokes and in, pokes into some of these uh, or shows the holes of, of this kind of, of enforcement.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I did some research uh, during the 2020 election when I was a research fellow at the Wilson Center, and we looked at the ways that uh, women who were running for office in the United States, New Zealand, the UK, and Canada were being targeted with gendered disinformation and harassment. And you'd think that, okay, you can just make a list of the uh, insults that people use against women all the time, and that'll bring up everything in, in that universe. And actually, what we found is there was a whole, other universe of stuff that the platforms weren't finding because people were deliberately attempting to evade detection through what we call malign creativity so rather than use the b word uh what people would write would be b exclamation point t c h right and and the ai that's searching for uh that sort of content would ne- not necessarily be uh tripped up by that. Um they would use image-based harassment. So something that uh men like to to use a lot, especially for women in their 30s, and I have gotten this one very frequently, is uh images of empty egg cartons, which are meant to say, uh your, you know, your your fertility clock is ticking, you should get out of the national security space and go make babies, things like that. Or, you know, these um, very specific nicknames to uh, describe their targets. So against Kamala Harris, for instance, uh, during the 2020 election, uh, the Biden-Harris campaign was often referred to as pee pads and Knee Pads or Joe and the hoe, mm. which was uh, meant to kind of elude that uh, Kamala Harris had slept her way to the top, this disinformation narrative that was uh, quite prominent during the 2020 election. And so um, what we found and and what we're asking for is that the social media platforms be a bit more proactive in their detection of these narratives, right? Uh, These are multi billion dollar corporations, I had a research team of six people, we found hundreds of 1000s of instances of abuse and disinformation. And until we rang the alarm bell about it, a lot of it was just allowed to persist despite uh, actively and explicitly violating the terms of service that the social media platforms had had put out there themselves.
0: Mm. We've got another presidential election uh, in 2024. Um, What are your main concerns, Nina, when you see the way uh, these actors um, are using uh, the Internet again uh, with disinformation and these harassment campaigns?
2: I really worry about the downstream effect on young women or or even just women of any age making their voices heard online as well as marginalized communities. You know, uh, it was a beautiful moment to see Kamala Harris inaugurated as vice president of the United States. But if you look on any of her tweets or Facebook posts, if you look at, you know, even her tweets on inauguration day and you scroll down, you are very, very likely to see uh, horrific abuse, disinformation, harassment against the vice president of the United States, right? You're likely to see that against uh, probably Kat, against me. Even by being on this show here today, we are likely to generate some unfortunate, unsavory stuff against us. And that is, as Kat said, unfortunately, right now, part of the job. I wish it weren't, but it is. Uh, I worry about future generations and other women saying, you know what, I'm not going to make my voice heard. I'm not going to get involved in politics or public life because I don't want to risk having to deal with that. And I think that that is absolutely chilling. It is un-American. And frankly, uh, it is something that we should all be working to change. It is not part of political discourse to receive sexualized threats just because you are a woman who has an opinion, who is expressing it. Um, And that is a democratic problem. We can't have a democracy when 50% of the population is worried about the abuse that they might engender if they get involved. So I hope our politicians are waking up. I hope there is going to be more pressure put on the social media platforms, which again are profiting off of this. And I hope my fellow Americans, who perhaps you know saw me on on Fox News or read falsehoods about me, recognize that just like for for me, you know, I'm a mom, I'm I'm a wife, I'm a, a fun loving person. I'm just a person like you, and so are the other people that are getting abused online. We all deserve to to you know live our lives in in peace and happiness. And there's nothing uh, that. Uh, is, you know, American or, or frankly peaceful or happy about these sorts of abuse that people are willingly uh, and gleefully perpetrating online.
0: Uh, we heard from a, a listener who asked, you know, if you're being harassed online, you should just stay offline. How do you respond to that?
2: <laughs> I hear that one a lot. Um, and my answer would be, if I were to turn off my computer, you know, put down my cell phone, I wouldn't have a way to work. Uh, my, my research is online. Uh, I get my voice out there by being active online. And frankly, you know, as I mentioned before, so much of our daily lives, our personal lives, social and administrative are online as well. And by turning on your computer, if you're risking a mob coming at you, I don't think that that is a a viable solution to staying offline. That is silencing me. It is silencing the people who have also been experiencing abuse. And I don't think it's fair that people, just because they're slinging insults and threats at me, uh, that they should be able to maintain their voice while I should be pushed into a corner. Uh, we all have a right to speak freely in this country. And I think uh, as much as people might claim that abuse is covered by freedom of speech, I would say that the abusers who are trying to silence me uh, you know, should not be infringing on my own freedom
0: of speech. That's Nina Jankowicz, vice president at the Center for Information Resilience, a UK-based nonprofit, also author of the book, How to Be a Woman Online, Surviving Abuse and Harassment, and How to Fight Back. Nina, thank you for your time on the show. My pleasure. Also with us, Kat Tenbarge, tech and culture reporter at NBC. Kat, thank you for your reporting. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. Tess Terrible produced this episode. Our technical producer today is Dylan Reyes. We'll be back tomorrow.